Um, so anyway, today um, we'll uh, continue on kind of reading and, and, and praying and uh, thinking through uh, this letter that Paul writes Timothy. Um, but before we get started, I'd like to get started with prayer. Um, Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your love and your peace, um, all of which we don't deserve, and yet you have chosen to adopt us as your children. Uh, we thank you because we know that you are already present here, uh, that you're always present with us, um, and we simply ask that we uh, that your Holy Spirit may be here in a way that we um, can understand and perceive uh, as we think about you and talk about you, that we may gain a better understanding, a better view of who uh, you truly are. We thank you uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, if you haven't done so already, I'd like for us all to be on the, uh, the book. This is the Second Timothy uh, chapter 2. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we got through most of chapter 2. And today we're in verse 14 of chapter 2. Um, so 2 Timothy 2, verse 14. And Donna did a good job of reading uh, kind of what I think is the really the core of, of this letter. And I, I think, I hope that you will understand why in a little bit. So uh, 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 says, Remind them of this and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words, which does no good but only ruins those who are listening. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. Avoid profane chatter, for it will lead people into more and more impiety, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth by claiming that the resurrection has already taken place. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's solid, God's firm foundation stands bearing this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. So we get this interesting picture of, of the state of the church as, as Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's, he's encouraging him. And let's remember, Paul is in prison at this moment. He knows that he's likely not going to make it out. And so he's, he's really trying to give Timothy as much good advice as he possibly can. And he gets this, this issue of word wrangling, right? Wrestling thoughts, uh, putting words uh, together to say what you mean versus what people will think that you mean. Language is, is complex. It's, it's a sophisticated skill. And let's just say it's just a little bit problematic. Right? Wrestling words is really about wrestling thoughts, which is really about wrestling emotions. Because at the core of our being is the capacity for feelings, 
pesky, sometimes illogical, at times overwhelming, right? Don't you ever wish that you could just go on living without having to feel anything? Imagine how easy it would be to, to just get on with, with your daily living without having to feel a certain way about something, right? Some of, some of you might actually think this is a good idea, but um, I think many of us would disagree and say that this would be a very, very boring way of living our lives. And so there is a, there's a reason why God has given us this ability for emotion. Uh, but we tend to put logic above emotion pretty much all the time. Um, so Paul continues, he says, remind them of this and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words, which does no good, but only ruins those who are listening. So thanks, Paul. You know, stop wrangling over words. It's a struggle, isn't it? But before I let your mind go in the direction of verbal arguments, which I'm sure you're already thinking about, let's put this into context. He mentions two, two men's names. Hard to pronounce. I'm not sure if I'm even doing it right, but Hymenaeus and Philetus. They've gone rogue. They seem to have very intelligent minds, no doubt. They've swerved off into conspiracy theories. They say the resurrection has already happened. It's an interesting statement, considering that they probably both hadn't ever died uh, just yet. And Paul, you see, Paul was the apostle to, to the Gentiles, which, which were very heavily influenced by Greek religion and culture and philosophy. Paul seems to be dealing with people who have reduced the meaning of the gospel to something to be experienced only in the mind and maybe in the heart. Something that ignored the physical world they lived in. Sometimes we get caught up in thinking that religion and learning from Jesus is all just head knowledge. Right? It's easy to fall into that trap. The trap of learning about Jesus without really having it affect how we live. See, see I, I'm the kind of person that can spend all week digging through scripture. I, I love it. I know that probably sounds boring to some of you. And, and some of you are action-oriented, right? And that's great. I could probably use some action-orientedness. Um, um, trust me. <laughs> But, but back to the, the, the thing that we're dealing with here. These men had somehow uh, philosophized the gospel by saying that the resurrection had already happened. Now, no one knows for sure you know, what their ideas really were, but it could be said that maybe they had reduced the, the idea of resurrection to, to this, this thought that, that you, that you um, put to death the old man, right? And then you, you live a new life in Jesus Christ. And, and it's just... Head knowledge is just something you experience here, but it's not necessarily physical. And, and this was causing trouble. It was upsetting the faith of some and causing controversy, debates, useless arguments in the house of God. But if this is the church, the body of Christ, how can that be happening? Isn't the body of Christ supposed to be perfect? Isn't it supposed to be a light to the world? Was Jesus wrong to have left the entire movement of the kingdom of God and the message of the gospel 
in the hands of imperfect believers? Did he misjudge his disciples? Did Paul misjudge Timothy and his ability? Did Paul really believe that somehow this kingdom experiment of the church was going to survive? I find myself thinking, come on, Paul. Really? Did you not think about human error? What did you get us into? So I want you to think personally. Think about the last argument that you had. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm for real. I want you to think about the last argument that you had with someone. It's a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? See, I absolutely hate arguments. I, I avoid them at all costs. But sometimes avoiding conflict it, at all costs requires me to just simply avoid people altogether. Sometimes it's easier to just avoid getting involved with too many people because the less interaction, the less possibility of disagreeing and conflict. But that plan usually backfires, right? Because wherever people are, there is conflict. So did Jesus really think it was a good idea to leave the ship in our control? I can't help to think that maybe there's something I don't understand about Jesus' thinking. Because even when it's not church members wrestling each other, we tend to like this, this, this sensationalism, right? None of us would fall today for the idea that the resurrection has already happened. So that's not a problem for us. But, but sometimes when we start preaching that the end is here, we get this church room filled. And I've seen it. It's interesting how it works. It gets us going. Jesus is coming soon. Hurry up. Get in here. Right? We don't, we don't have very much time. Look at the world. Look at politics, economics. What's the Pope up to? Look at the signs. It's coming. It's shocking on. It spreads like wildfire. But if Jesus is coming tomorrow, you'd, like, you'd be likely to neglect the world around you. And if Jesus isn't coming back tomorrow, you might begin to neglect your relationship with him. Isn't that right? And I think this is why Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hours. Don't spend your time trying to figure it out. Because then you'll start focusing on counting the days, treating the prophecies like math equations. We can get it down to a science, all in your head. But where is the action? How do we go from obsessing about the times to loving each other? Which is more difficult? Memorizing Bible verses and dates or loving the people you live with? I find that loving people is often most difficult. Oftentimes because I confuse loving them with loving myself. Sometimes I love people because I want them to love me back. To transactional love. We humans are complicated. Avoid profane chatter. Avoid wrangling over words. It only ruins those standing by who are listening to you. Avoid predictions of the end. Avoid wrangling over dates. Avoid getting into arguments because you know you'll be tempted to want to win regardless of what the argument even is. 
No one talks to me like that, right? Who do they think they are? And then we get into arguments with those that we love. And oddly enough, sometimes uh, we're tempted to believe that they're hurting us on purpose. Isn't that true? See, what Paul isn't saying is that arguments in and of themselves are wrong to have. It's specifically the type of arguing that hurts us and and hurts those who listen. It's the bickering over nonsense that he's getting at. He says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. That's a tall order. He continues, avoid profane chatter, (laughs) for it will lead people into more impiety. Avoid not arguments, but profane ones. Talk that leads nowhere, that goes in circles. Avoid philosophical justification. All of the nothing that leads nowhere in no time at all. What is important to Paul is the faith of the believers. He's His priority is to protect it. So even as he writes from his prison cell, he is caring for the faith of the early church. He knows that we tend to get in our own way. And more often than not, nonsense arguments are rooted in hurt feelings. And if you have any experience with this kind of arguments, you know it spreads like wildfire. Whether you're a kid in middle school or an elder or a pastor, it's likely to come your way. Sometimes out of the blue. It's just there, in your face. (laughs) It's no different in politics, obviously. On the news, the internet, people debating over issues that debating can't help. People crying out against the president, people crying out for him. People supporting impeachment, people indignant that others would do that. People in support of building a wall, others in support of open borders. What a mess. And likely... This is only a greater symptom of what we experience in our own daily living. Within our families, our marriages, our friendships, some for, others against. Some obey, some misbehave. Some want one thing, some want the other. We push and we pull and tangle ourselves up. Often uselessly. But what about the church, right? Surely there's hope in the Adventist church, right? Well, let's see. Some for women's ordination, others against. Some for the King James Version only, others against. Some for moving to the hills, others for staying put. Some for change, others for keeping things the same. Some for hymns, some for contemporary worship. And some for no music at all. Some for baptism only after accepting all 28 fundamental beliefs. Others for baptizing immediately. When will it all and unity feels like a myth, right? Adults acting like children, children struggling to become adults. No one sees eye to eye and no one wants a different perspective. What a mess. And we're supposed to be the light of the world. Really, Jesus? This was your grand plan? Has it worked in the last 2,000 years? I wonder. And it seems like we're in trouble. Right? But the true house of God will not fall. 
Because if each of us is rooted in God's solid foundation, we will by definition be united. Listen to Paul as he gives us what is the thesis statement to this entire letter. In verse 19, Adana read, says, but God's firm foundation, some of your translations will say God's solid foundation stands, bearing an inscription. It's very common in, in, in Roman architecture for the foundations of a building to have something written on them. And, and I think even till this day, in, in our modern day and era, we find these inscriptions. So there's an inscription on this firm foundation, and it says two things. It says, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. According to Paul, the foundation of the house of God stands on these two things. Remember the two things. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who calls on his name turn away from wickedness. So Paul then continues to try to explain this to us. He gives us a short parable. He says in verse 20, In a large house there are utensils not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay some for special use, some for ordinary. All who cleanse themselves of these things I have mentioned will become special utensils dedicated and useful to the owner of the house, ready for every good work. First, notice that all of the utensils, all of them, are in the house of the master. All of them. Sure, there's some that are made of gold and silver and others are wood and clay, but they're all meant to serve a purpose in that house. And he says, all who clean, clean themselves of the things that I just mentioned will become special utensils dedicated and useful to the owner of the house, ready for every good work. All believers are already in the, in, in the house but not all are ready to be used. Jesus has made us all perfect before God as those approved by him, but not all are ready for every good work. Those unready must clean themselves of profane chatter, of word wrangling and swerving into random conspiracies and being divisive forces in the house of God. And often we ourselves are not ready to be used for what God has prepared for us. He continues, shun youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Do you see the connection there? You remember the two things on the foundation. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Paul, at the very beginning of the letter in, in, in chapter 1, verse 12 says, But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I've put my trust. The foundation says the Lord knows those who are his. Paul continues, But I am not ashamed because 
because he knows Jesus. And he tells Timothy to do the same, to present himself to God as one approved and being unashamed. That foundation also says, let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. And Paul tells Timothy, shun youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who do what? Who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Are you ashamed today? Have you been pursuing everything but righteousness, faith, love, and peace? Have your passions led you astray? Are you the bad sheep in the family? See, the foundations of God's house are pretty solid. God knows those who are his, and if you belong to him, then turn away from wickedness. And doubtless, you're probably feeling the weight of so solid a foundation right now. But you're already a utensil in God's house. You have already been approved by him. Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows those who are his. He leaves the 99 to look for you. Jesus is the woman who sweeps the whole house to find that lost coin. God is the father who welcomes home the runaway son and throws a feast for him when he, come, when he returns. Jesus gathered you into his fold. He didn't ask you to clean up before you came. He accepted you as you are right now, as you were yesterday, and as you will be tomorrow. Because Jesus is the good news of today Amen. and always. Amen. He is the beginning and the end. Jesus picks up the lost sheep and he carries it home. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. His kindness accepts you before you even think of repenting. You should clean yourself not to be accepted, but because you've been accepted. Because God has a purpose for you. And you need to get ready for it. So sometimes we just, we just need to stop sitting in our failure. Right? Get up, clean up, show up. You got in a useless argument? Get up, clean up, show up. You got all excited about the latest conspiracy? Get up, clean up, show up. You're a utensil in God's house. It's almost Thanksgiving, right? And he's preparing a meal. If you want to be used, get up, clean up, show up. God is waiting for you. Every day, he won't quit. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And if you have the New King James Version, it says, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One single offering. That's it. It's done. You're a dish in God's house now. Purchased by his sacrifice. What does it mean to be sanctified? By simply put, it's to be set apart for a unique purpose, for a special work. Not a common one. A unique work. But I can't be holy, you say. Let me tell you something about God. God arrived as a common man in Jesus. Jesus made common fishermen into disciples. 
Jesus spoke to common people, ate with sinners, looked for the lost. The four Gospels written in common Greek. Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles, the unholy ones, with, according to the Jewish standards of the time. But God has gathered us common utensils into one house to be used for every good work. Jesus is the name that supersedes all names. That Jesus who put an end to endless sacrifice. He put an end to salvation by works. He looks at me in this very moment and he knows my weaknesses. He knows my trials. He knows my failure. He knows my pain. He knows my pride, my grief, my joy, my hope, my finances, my debts, my darkness, my sin. He knows my frame. He knows my steps, my waking and walking, my thoughts, my words, my fears, my tendency to give up. You see, that Jesus, he knows me because I am his. Amen. And though we may be dirty and unprepared to serve, we are his. Yes. He's purchased you. He's brought you home to be used in the house of God. Don't you see? The Lord knows those who are his. It's written on solid rock, a solid foundation, says Paul. It's not going anywhere. It won't be changed. Grace is written on that foundation. I want to be a useful utensil in God's hands. I want to do good works because he knows me, because he wants me, because he would rather die than not have me. You see, Jesus did that for me, and he did it for you. It's his kindness that leads us to change, to leave it behind, to serve out of gratitude, not fear of punishment, to build each other up rather than to tear down, to unify rather than to divide, to bring healing where there is brokenness. So let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Let everyone in the house of God turn to righteousness, faith, love, and peace. May God's kindness melt our hearts into purity because we have been accepted. We, you, in this place have been accepted. God no longer sees what we see when we look in the mirror. He sees what we're worth. And what we're worth is his blood. What I am worth is in Christ. And Christ is all. Jesus Christ is himself that foundation. In him are inscribed both things. I know you because you are mine. And if you call on my name, then you must turn away from your old ways. In him are both mercy and and justice, mercy to accept us, justice to set us straight. And the judgment itself is mercy as well, because he disciplines those who are his. Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, 
I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. To end, we have Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Listen to what Peter says. It says, For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, that stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner. And a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Once you were nobodies, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, as we move into the season of Thanksgiving, I think that when we serve God out of gratitude, that's the best place to be. And gratitude and thankfulness sometimes also require confession and forgiveness. Jesus is that stone. Jesus already purchased you. Jesus made you perfect before God, even as you are being set apart to be used in the house of God. God reproves us because he loves us. He disciplines us because we are his children. Both mercy and justice are married in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing on earth that will ever change that. The only reason I stand here and can talk about this <laughs> is because I also need him too. And so I think that this cross behind us is here to remind us none of us are worth it. Sorry, I misspoke. <laughs> we are all worth it to him because he is a worthy king of all. Father, in this moment, we thank you for all that you've done for us. And we ask that you rekindle the fire of your Holy Spirit within each of our hearts and minds so that we may be ready to be used for every good work in your house. We thank you because you've accepted and loved us before you even knew us. You gave your life for us. You make us worthy before the Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.